The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Definitely this put pressure on the Arab governments that have normalized with Israel and and you saw the UAE come out with a statement on Jerusalem as well, you know, condemning the storming of the Al-Aqsa and, and, and likewise across the Arab world. And I think this is going to make it very difficult for the Arab governments that have normalized with Israel to move forward as aggressively as they had been following the, the signing of the Abraham Accords because of just how much coverage this has had in the Arab world and just how sensitive this issue was with the attack on the Al-Aqsa Mosque. I'm Scott R. Anderson, and this is the Lawfare Podcast for May 12th, 2021. The situation in Israel and the Palestinian territories is growing heated. Protests over the forced dislocation of Palestinian residents of East Jerusalem have escalated into violent confrontations with Israeli police forces, including in the old city of Jerusalem and on the sacred grounds of the Al-Aqsa Mosque, interrupting prayers there during the holy month of Ramadan. Over the past few days, these clashes have in turn triggered rocket attacks into Israel from Hamas-controlled Gaza and reciprocal airstrikes by the Israeli military. In the last 24 hours, some such rockets have even reached the city of Tel Aviv, leading Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and his coalition partner, alternate Prime Minister Benny Gantz, to promise a new military operation against Hamas in Gaza over the days to come. To catch up on these fast-moving developments, I sat down with Natan Sachs, a fellow at the Brookings Institution and director of the Center for Middle East Policy, and Zaha Hassan, a human rights lawyer and visiting fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. We discussed the origins of this most recent conflict, the unusual Israeli and Palestinian political context in which it's occurring, and what it might all mean for the Biden administration's own objectives in the region. It's the Lawfare Podcast for May 12th, Jerusalem on the Brink. Zaha, let me start with you. Obviously, uh, this current conflict, the current moment of tension, has a lot of its immediate origins in a dispute over a neighborhood in Jerusalem called Sheikh Jara. Can you give us a little bit about what the basis for that dispute is, what's been happening there, and how that has triggered reactions, not just in Jerusalem, but in other parts of Israel and Palestine as well? Sure. So Sheikh Jarrah is an area in which we have Palestinian families who live there. You know, they they were made refugees in 1948 when they lost their properties in places like Haifa, Yaffa, and in West Jerusalem. And so they ended up in Sheikh Jarrah by an agreement between the UN Relief and Works Agency for Palestine Refugees and the Jordanian government. 
And basically they had to renounce their claims to their homes and property, you know, that they lost in 1948 in order to get these homes and live in them. And so this was around 1950 when they got these homes and they were supposed to get the deeds from the Jordanian government after a few years. But um, because of, you know, delays in things and because of the 67 war, the families never did get a hold of those deeds. And so um, some settler organizations, you know, were looking into the properties in Sheikh Jarrah and found out about the history of this area. And through whatever means they had, there's a lot of questions about the way they got the Israeli court to validate, you know, that this is Jewish property from before 48 and that these settlers had a right to, to reclaim it under Israeli laws that allow Jewish citizens to reclaim, as the phrase is used, property that belonged to Jews before 1948. Now, Palestinians can't reclaim you know, their property that they had inside of what became the state of Israel before 1948. In fact, there's Israeli laws that specifically have worked to dispossess Palestinians who owned property inside what became Israel. In fact, Palestinian citizens of Israel who are internally displaced uh, within Israel lost their property as well. So they're living, you know, as renters in properties that, you know, that are leased to them by the Israeli government, because, you know, under these laws, if they had ever left their home between 1947, during the emergency that was taking place because of the Arab-Israeli conflict, if they ever left their home for any period of time, you know, and were in enemy territory for any period of time, they would be, they would have forfeited the right to their property and homes. And so these families in Sheikh Jarrah fall into that category of, of refugees who lost their property because of these Israeli laws, but then you know were, were granted these properties from, from Jordan and Sheikh Jarrah to live. So they've lived there for quite some time. And you know, the stories are, are very <laughs> difficult because these families have endured so much with the settlers trying to force them out of the houses by, by just various means of you know, harassment and these kinds of things. In one family's case, the, the Kurd family, they actually, you know, built an addition to their house as the family grew over the years. And um, because they built that addition without a permit, because most Palestinians can't get a permit to build in Jerusalem, the addition to their house was given to Jewish settler groups. And these settler groups that come in there, they kind of revolve like the occupants that come in to, to live in the addition of, of this family home are young Jewish Israelis who are really trying to harass the family and try to force them and make their lives unlivable. And so th that's the kind of existence a lot of these families in Sheikh Jarrah have been, you know, been dealing with for a number of years. And so while all this is going on, there's this court case has been working its way to the Supreme Court trying to evict the families under this law that allows Jews to reclaim property. So that's that's what the situation has been for a number of years. And over the years, these families have been, um, you know, they've been supported by solidarity groups that come in and trying to protect the family from, you know, harassment, you know, from the settlers that have, are moving into the, air, into the neighborhood and also are, you know, sharing the residence of some of the families. So um, it, this has been a longstanding issue in Sheikh Jarrah.
So we've seen this dispute, which, as, as you noted, is, has been pretty longstanding in Sheikh Jarrah. It's a, a dispute that's been percolating for a while, been heating up for the last several weeks. And then more recently, in the last few days, we've seen uh, some protest movements that often started in Sheikh Jarrah, or at least those are kind of the, the first signs of other activities other in other places, uh, most notably in the old city in Jerusalem, uh, which has been the center of a lot of activity for the last few days. Natan, I, I know you're a native uh, Jerusalemite. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the action that's been happening on the streets of the old city uh, and how that fits into this dispute and has in some ways amplified it and incorporated other parts of the country and other people there? Sure. Um, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to, to be here with Zaha. I think what we have here is really a confluence of of a lot of different things at once. So on the one hand, the the national narrative that Zaha described, uh, touching on the refugee issue, and there's an irony here. This is of course almost the right of return kind of in in effect here because old Jewish property that was purchased by the by some of these settlers or at least their backers, with of course not the reciprocal right of return laws in place. But then there's also the religious aspect. This is all happening now towards the end of Ramadan. Uh, Eid is this week, later this week. And at the same time, also what Israelis celebrate or Jewish Israelis celebrate as Jerusalem Day, which commemorates the reunification of Jerusalem or the conquest of East Jerusalem in the 1967 war. And that was on Monday. That in recent decades has often included marches through East Jerusalem and through the old city, including entering, or at least some of the demonstrators, the men entering from what's known as Damascus Gate or Nablus Gate. That was also the scene of demonstrations even before uh, the end of Ramadan. This is an area that is frequented often by youth from East Jerusalem in particular. And of course, at the break fast at the end of the day during Ramadan, there'd be a lot of youth congregating there. There is a police station there, and there was uh, a lot of friction, partly instigated around the Sheikh Jarrah issues, but not only, that got a sort of a life of their own. So then on top of that, you had the Jerusalem Day planned march, which did not take place at the end. It was canceled by the police. But all this at the same time created both a national narrative, a religious narrative with events on Temple Mount, which Haram al-Sharif, where violence broke out there and the police used a very heavy hand even in the mosque itself. Altogether, you had almost a perfect storm that brings us to a very sorry moment. And then just in the last few days, we've seen what has been a lot of tension on the streets, a lot of conflict between protesters and demonstrators on both sides, uh, particularly on the Palestinian side and police forces, primarily on the Israeli side, that has, has an element of violence, but has now turned into, to some extent, something that begins to get closer or look a lot more like a shooting war in Gaza with the exchange of rocket fire out of Gaza, returning military strikes by the Israeli military. Zaha, can you bring us up to speed on these most recent developments that really, even over those last few hours, have begun to spiral into what, for people who've been watching Gaza for a while, is a pretty familiar cycle of escalation? Sure. I mean, you know, I, I want to just go back to, to the issue of the Al-Aqsa Mosque, you know, the activities there, because I, I haven't seen any of this covered on on cable news. Now they're starting to cover, you know, the issues in Jerusalem, and of course the, you know, because of the rocket fire from from Gaza and landing some of them in Jerusalem and and elsewhere inside of Israel. But I mean, the, the coverage of the Al Aqsa and what happened inside, it was really absent from sort of U.S. coverage in general. I mean, if you weren't you know, watching your social media feeds, you know, you wouldn't, 
you wouldn't see the images, but I also watch Palestine TV and, and see, you know, see the feeds from, from the news stations that are covering it. And really it was, you had to see just how the Israeli police were acting with trying to provoke almost the, the kids like in a cat and mouse game uh, around the Damascus Gate, Bab al-Amud. And then inside of, you know, inside the Haram al-Sharif, the esplanade uh, around the Al-Aqsa Mosque and the Dome of the Rock, you know, during the month of Ramadan, there are, you know, thousands of Palestinian uh, Muslims that go to the esplanade to pray on the floor of the esplanade and inside of the the two mosques that are there. And um, what you saw in the footage was really just, you know, the the police storming the esplanade and, you know, firing indiscriminately their tear gas and their, you know, rubber bullets and all this kind of thing and going inside of the of the mosque. Now, I mean, I I don't know of any other images like that, you know, of you know, thinking about sort of what would happen if you saw something like that with Palestinians doing that at the Wailing Wall, for example. But, you know, if you think about Hamas and its narrative, that imagery, you know, um, and seeing that from Gaza and knowing what their political platform is, you have to know that that's going to force them into um, some kind of response, right? And they and they actually warned about this beforehand. It wasn't like they, you know, were hiding the ball about what they were going to do. And so you have to wonder why, you know, the Israeli government allowed that kind of police action during the month of Ramadan, the last 10 days of Ramadan, one of the holiest days of Ramadan, Laylat al-Qadr, was the night that the police chose to invade the sacred space, you know, and start attacking. And I mean, there, it's really hard to look at that image and see, and see how there was a security threat to to the Israeli soldiers on the on the Haram that night. So yeah, so what we've seen following that was Hamas, especially because the next day after Laylat al-Qadr, when that assault took place where hundreds of Palestinians were injured and, and hospitalized, Hamas reacted. And Hamas reacted how? Launching rockets to Jerusalem ahead of Jerusalem Day, right? Because that was going to be the next big flare-up, you know, to have a march by folks that were going to walk straight into the Arab parts of Jerusalem with chanting that is very racist and incendiary. Who knows what would have happened had the the event not been canceled. But for Hamas, it was sort of like they were in a corner. If they didn't respond, they would completely look emasculated among their among their followers. And at the same time, it was an opportunity for them, if you think about it, because during all of these protests in East Jerusalem, a place where the Palestinian Authority has no jurisdiction, has no, no control, uh, during all of this time, the Palestinian Authority is just sitting back and watching and on the phone calling, you know, various capitals to try to get them to, you know, intercede with Israel to de-escalate. But that's all they could do. So this presented also an opportunity for Hamas to say, well, here we are, and we're going to stand up for Jerusalem if the Palestinian Authority can't and won't. The police action in this in these whole weeks has been uh, atrocious, the Israeli police action. 
and in particular the the action in uh, in Al-Aqsa Mosque. There is a widespread sort of sense that that this was somehow a provocation, or that Netanyahu is, is interested in it. There is a real problem, of course. All this is on the backdrop of political crisis in Israel, and so there is a real problem. Two different problems happening. One is that Netanyahu does not have the same interest in quiet that he might in another time. And the second is that there's simply a lack of governance. The security cabinet, which would generally be running most affairs, barely meets. The government itself is barely functional, and we may be simply days away from a new government forming, perhaps not even headed by Netanyahu. And as a result, the people running the show are a very new head of the police and a minister of internal security who's in charge of the police, who's try to use the polite phrase, a psychophant of Netanyahu's. And so you have two different explanations to what's going on. One is that this is a provocation, an attempt to stir things up, and another is that it's extreme incompetence uh, and in some cases stupidity. The fact that the march on Jerusalem they did not actually take place, it was canceled by the Israeli police, I think is strong evidence for the, la- for the latter, uh, for extreme incompetence. It does not make it much better, but there is usually, obviously, there's a very strong human bias to interpret malice in the action of others and incompetence in, in our own actions. I would just caution here. It doesn't serve, it certainly doesn't serve Israelis, what's happening now. There were, we saw dead now uh, nine children in Gaza killed yesterday, and today we saw two or three dead uh, in Israel. There were two, there's one in critical condition. This is not benefiting anyone. I don't think the Israeli government was trying to do it but I would be first, the first to say they've taken about nine different steps that were, uh, that were horrendous. And this serves, of course, Hamas's purpose. Now Hamas has started firing rockets and is changing this conflict from something around the plight of the families in Sheikh Jarrah, where there was a lot of solidarity, even from West Jerusalemites sometimes and from some Israelis, into a conflict between Israel uh, and Gaza where rockets are shot I would say indiscriminately, but they're not. They're, of course, trying to target civilian populations and have indeed succeeded today. And where the retaliation is very tough from the Israelis and is bound to get tougher. You obviously, Natan, you authored a report a few years ago looking back at kind of a history of Gaza and the role that different policies have played, the kind of cycle of developments that have kind of plagued Gaza time and time again whether it's Israeli military operations, cycles of development issues, other sorts of issues that that has plagued Gaza. And a lot of that has has centered on these familiar policies that seem to kind of pop up again and again every few years around these incidents. So given that we have this announcement now from Prime Minister Netanyahu and Gantz as well, saying we are going to pursue military operation in response to the most recent round of rocket attacks, a few of which, at least according to reports I've seen online, hit Tel Aviv as well as other parts in Israel. We are going to pursue a military operation. What should we expect that to look like? What is it going to mean? They've said it's going to be take time. We're going to respond, but we're going to restore normalcy for the lives of Israeli citizens in regards to these rocket attacks from Gaza. You know, what is that military operation likely to look like? And the other aspects of how are the other aspects of Israeli policy towards Gaza likely to change in response to this most recent crisis? So the short answer is, of course, I don't know. And the reason, the main reason I don't know is that if the Israeli government hopes for a short operation and to get Hamas to simply stop firing rockets, then it needs to sound like it's willing to go for a long operation that would be very forceful in order to deter Hamas. And if it intends to do the latter, then it would also say that. So 
words are cheap, right? The question is, what are they really after? Generally speaking, with Israel vis-a-vis Gaza, what Israel would like is quiet. And that's in part because the status quo is okay for them. We have seen incremental improvement now recently in the Gaza Strip, partly with involvement of Qatar, but also others in gas and in electricity. But this is, of course, on the margins. The situation in Gaza remains horrendous. So what, what would probably look like is a forceful response, especially to rocket fire. We should remember, you know, from the Israeli perspective, the modal Israeli perspective, all the background that we just described can, can be one way or the other. But if someone is firing rockets at civilian populations from outside the country, their response is going to be as you would expect most governments to be. And that is something that Hamas can always count on. And it allows it to shift the conflict towards its own goal and very much away from the things we were discussing earlier uh, with regard to Sheikh Jarrah. So the Israeli response is likely to be forceful. I, however, expect that it probably will be gradually increasing in force. In other words, we're still far away from a ground operation, and that would be something that the Israeli military would probably not want. That would be very costly, certainly for Gaza, but also for the Israeli military and very difficult to operate, and something that uh, Israeli governments have not pursued now for over well over a decade, including under Netanyahu. So we, we're likely to see an increase in pressure. So far, we've seen attacks. They've usually been attacks that have devastated infrastructure, but have at least ostensibly tried to, to avoid civilians, of course, not successfully. We saw already nine children, as I mentioned uh, in the very first uh, instance yesterday. But we're probably going to see an escalation of it. The rhetoric is going to be loud, and a lot will depend on the calculation of Hamas. And this is, of course, usually the, the position of any of the combatants. They want to say, look, I'm simply reacting. I have no choice. I must maintain my deterrence. And therefore, it's all on the other side. And that's kind of the game of chicken. Hamas will do some of the same. This, unfortunately, we, we are past the moment of getting into an escalatory rationale. I hate the word cycle. I don't think it describes it well, but we are already there in what we sometimes would call a cycle of violence. It's, it's already a case where everyone thinks that their deterrence or their pride or something else is on the line. And getting out of this mess will be harder now. Well, Natan, let me follow up on the point you opened with about this weird political moment for the Israeli side in which this is happening, where we have uh, election results that are pending one of a series of recent elections, that there's still an ongoing effort to form a new government that has just been handed off to a new set of hands as of last week, that we don't know exactly what the results are going to be yet, but could be a dramatic change in the leadership in Israel, particularly around Netanyahu, as you mentioned, for the first time in a very long time. How does that factor into the response to the sort of crisis politically? Is that a factor that might lead to a change in policy? Is there agreement between the different potential governments that might come out of this current formation process? And is that formation process itself likely to be affected by this crisis, delayed or otherwise shaped by it in a way that's going to have an enduring effect on the Israeli political system? So the latest state of play is that Netanyahu failed to form a government after now the fourth election, and the mandate to form a government was passed to the opposition leader, Yair Lapid. He is in extensive negotiations and probably not far from concluding these negotiations with Naftali Bennett from the right wing, maybe far right, although there's certainly much farther right than him now, further right than him now. But with Naftali Bennett likely being the first prime minister in a rotation government, with Yair Lapid being the second prime minister and serving in the interim as foreign minister. 
this would be a very strange coalition in an extremely wide tent, all the way from Meretz on the left, so left of labor, through labor and the center, and all the way to Naftali Bennett from the Yamina party, which means rightward. So a very strange coalition. It would also need probably the active support of Ram, which is a party representing mostly Palestinian citizens of Israel, an Islamic-based party, which has broken with the Arab joint list and was flirting with possibly supporting Netanyahu and may now support this alter- alternative coalition. So a very dramatic moment. If they managed to form this coalition and Naftali Bennett became prime minister, which could be a matter of days or weeks, Netanyahu would be out of the prime minister's office for the first time in well over a decade. I would caution against thinking that, you know, what this does. Uh, this does a lot of bad things, I think, for the, the short moment, whether or not that government would be, would be an improvement. In the short term, it creates strange incentives for the current government. Uh, Netanyahu does not have the usual incentive that a sitting prime minister would have, which is to produce long-term calm. And at the very least, there are people with suspicions that he would like to instigate things, although that's not generally been in his character, to say the least. On the other hand, if you saw a change in government, which could still happen, and of course might be postponed by this violence, uh, but if you saw a change in government, it's not that the alternative government would be dramatically different. For the first part, any new leader uh, has an incentive and a strong kind of need almost to prove their mettle and to show that they cannot be pushed around. And they will, people will say very frequently that they will be tested, of course, by Hamas to see uh, will they respond forcefully or will they be cowardly, etc. Uh, in ways that Netanyahu does not need to do so uh, just because he's been around for so long and has already fought Hamas in one very lengthy war. The second point is that Naftali Bennett as prime minister, he's very different from Netanyahu and in some ways quite able. He is very right wing. There's no two ways about it. He is vociferously opposed to a two-state solution, very vocally so. He is very pro-annexation. He is the one, in fact, who introduced it to the main Israeli discourse in recent years, annexing Area C. He spoke in the past of bringing down Hamas rule in the Gaza Strip. He's not the only one who said that before coming into office. He was a defense minister for a short while recently. So you would not expect him to to be very different. And frankly, nor would you you expect Yair Lapid, who needs to prove his bona fides as a centrist uh, or maybe even center-right in his in his claim, although people usually don't buy that, uh, as a sort of forceful leader as well. That is often the case with new leaders with, who don't have the credentials kind of, of of their predecessors. So I don't think this would change all that much. And once there are rockets throughout the country, and we already see that, once there are casualties throughout the country, there is a very strong sense and a very strong dynamic of circling the wagons and and seeing the Hamas threat on Israeli civilians as a unifying force, something that people tend to rally around, a very forceful response to, which contributes to this uh, very grim dynamic. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. 
A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. And of course, the Israeli government is only one of two sort of pending political situations that provide the backdrop for this recent set of events. The Palestinian Authority was also, at least until recently, scheduled to have elections later this month um, that has since been postponed. Zaha, can you give us a little bit of a sense of what the Palestinian political picture looks like and how that has intersected with the series of recent developments? Yeah, sure. I'm, You know, the, this on-again, off-again Palestinian elections has been going on for some years now, but this time around, the call for Palestinian elections by the Palestinian president, Mahmoud Abbas, looked pretty serious. And and that's because they went the furthest they'd ever gone in preparations for the legislative elections for the Palestinian Authority. And, you know, they had come to an agreement with Hamas and Hamas was willing to accept the PLO principles, but, you know, not the Oslo framework. But the PLO principles and the prisoners document actually that that lays out two state solution and also um, lays out uh, abiding by international law. So to get Hamas to that to that point and to get the Palestinian Authority working on uh, registering voters and um, you know getting the the lists registered was pretty significant. We saw ninety three percent of the Palestinian electorate registered and a lot of enthusiasm. And you might wonder, you know, what's all this enthusiasm for elections that are taking place under occupation? (laughs) But there was. And I think it has a lot to do with the fact that many of the Palestinians that would be voting have never voted in in an election before, many of them very young and very frustrated with, you know, skyrocketing unemployment and with a real you know, disaffection for the Palestinian leadership, who's not very popular among Palestinians in the West Bank, where he, you know, has authority, uh, not so in the in, in Gaza. Um, so there was all this enthusiasm, a lot of energy. You saw Fatah lists breaking apart as folks wanted something different than the current leadership and weren't willing to to go, you know, and, and stay with a party line. That's where we saw a breakdown in the interest of the Palestinian Authority with moving forward with elections is when the micromanagement of the elections um, wasn't producing the likely result that the ruling party Fatah wanted. And, And also there was a really lackluster response from the U.S. about elections. These were um, sort of behind the scenes, like, do you know what you're doing kind of responses to the Palestinian Authority. And, you know, the whole the whole reason for the interest among, you know, the inner circle of President Abbas for having elections is to, you know, to reassert, you know, his legitimacy and Fatah's legitimacy to be the interlocutor with the international community and with donors and, you know, to reassert that role and to give some kind of credibility to the PA because it had lost so much credibility over the course of the decades of negotiating with Israel and and not being able to achieve much in the way of a better 
uh, situation for Palestinians. So when there was no real interest shown, it was a no-brainer for the Palestinian president to pull back on elections and postpone them. You haven't heard any dismay about, you know, the lack of Palestinian political renewal from the U.S., which I think is is really unfortunate because if you hope to see, you know, a reunification of the Palestinian body politic and one voice to be able to negotiate and to be able to speak with any kind of credibility, you, you need to have national reconciliation. And the only way to get to national reconciliation is to have um, Hamas brought under the Palestinian or the PLO umbrella. And the only way that the Palestinian Authority president was going to start that process was through the legislative elections first and the and then the presidential elections and the PLO elections, which is kind of backwards if you think about it. Because first, you you know, one ought to have reconciliation and bring Hamas under the PLO umbrella before you start talking about bringing Hamas uh, back into the legislature, because the Palestinian Authority is only an agent of the PLO. If you, you know, if you don't accept the PLO and you don't accept the PLO principles and the national program as um, defined by the PLO, then it doesn't make much sense to be engaged, you know, in Palestinian authority elections because it uh, it sort of contradicts itself if you don't if you start from that level instead of starting from the top. And that's what that's what Hamas's preference was actually was to start the process of bringing it under the PLO umbrella. But it was actually the Palestinian Authority president that that chose the the synchronizing of elections as you saw, and that's because. There's a real concern about bringing um, Hamas under that PLO umbrella and having the national project redefined in a way that isn't in accord with with um, the direction Fatah wants to go. And so, you know, we're really at a stalemate again when we were quite close <laughs> to seeing actual elections take place for Palestinians in the occupied territories. But again, you know, it's what can the Palestinian Authority actually do in terms of bettering the lives of Palestinians? You know, there's still an occupation and there's still an ongoing effort to colonize the West Bank and limiting the, you know, the prospects for Palestinians in terms of their ability to move around, their ability to build, their ability to, to have businesses and economic development. But despite all that, you know, there was this interest in political renewal is really sort of a reaction to just decades of feeling like, you know, there's been a languishing of Palestinian political landscape. So obviously events of this scale and then in, in such a sensitive part of the world trigger reactions, not just within Israel and the Palestinian territories, but also from other corners of the world. Uh, Zaha, let me ask to start with you. What has the regional reaction been from nearby neighbors like Jordan, who obviously has a very vested interest in the old city in Jerusalem and Ram al-Sharif for the Temple Mount as well, and plays a unique historical role in a lot of this, or Egypt, which obviously has played a similarly integral role in regards to Gaza policy for a long time. But then we are also seeing in this uh, this happening just months after we saw a major rapprochement between major several governments in the region, you know, Sudan, Morocco, the UAE, 
recognizing Israel or at least engaging a level of diplomacy with Israel that we hadn't seen before. And in part on the understanding that it was going to, you know, at least temporarily, but substantially pause annexation and presumably avoid what was seen at the time as the worst outcome around this sort of issue set, precisely this question of moving into West Bank and East Jerusalem as part of an occupation and, and putting Israeli settlers there and claiming it, annexing it for the state of Israel. But this is obviously seems like it must necessarily put a lot of tension on that, particularly because at least part of the justificatory narrative that's put forward for that rapprochement was that these governments might be able to advocate more effectively for Palestinian interests in a relationship with Israel, as opposed from outside a relationship with Israel. Has this incident put new pressure on these governments, put them under new scrutiny for this decision to, to pursue this bridging of relationships? Or is there still hope that those governments might be able to engage effectively? Or are they simply standing back and, and not playing an active role in this crisis? Yeah, you know, as I said, I've been following you know, Arab media and Palestine TV and, and social media to see you know what's been the reaction across the Arab world. And there's just been an outpouring of solidarity. What you're talking about, Egypt, Jordan, the, dem the demonstrations have been huge. Bahrain and their social media, even UAE, you know, and this is because this is a very sensitive issue. I mean, we're, we're talking about Al-Aqsa, you're talking about Ramadan, you're talking about Laylat al-Qadr. So you can imagine that the passions were very, were running very high and there was, a, you know, a lot of solidarity you know, the Palestinian Muslim worshippers and, and, and Palestinians in general, because the whole, you know, Sheikh Jarrah issue and the uh, forced displacement of Palestinians became a very central issue in the news reporting. And I think that a lot of the Arab world got a real sense from hearing the stories of these families of what the challenges are of living in Jerusalem as a Palestinian. So in a sense, this was like an educational moment for people in the Arab world in general. Now, definitely this put pressure on the Arab governments that have normalized with Israel. And, and you saw the UAE come out with a statement on Jerusalem as well, and, you know, condemning the, the storming of the Al-Aqsa and, and, and likewise across the Arab world. And I think this is going to make it very difficult for the Arab governments that have normalized with Israel to move forward as aggressively as they had been following the, the signing of the Abraham Accords because of just how much coverage this has had in the Arab world and just how sensitive this issue was with the attack on the Al-Aqsa Mosque. So, you know, we'll have to wait and see. But in particular, the um, UAE is going to have a real hard sell in you know, moving forward as it has with the bilateral relationship with Israel. You know, right after the signing of the Abraham Accords, the UAE went full steam ahead with a number of follow-on agreements. And some of these agreements involved agreements with settler um, enterprises and in, uh, you know, visits from settler regional council heads to UAE to talk about further economic relations between the UAE and these, these settler groups. You know, there was also plans for the UAE, you know, to have this tech center and tourism center in East Jerusalem that would involve the eviction of Palestinians in the Wadi Joa's neighborhood of East Jerusalem. So I think what's taken place over the course of the last couple of weeks is really going to make 
those plans that the UAE had, that these development plans are going to put them in a spotlight that is going to make them really difficult to justify with people in the UAE who are generally supportive, despite all of the social media hoopla around the Abraham Accords. You know, the Palestinian human rights issue remains a top line item for Arabs across the Middle East. And I don't think it's going to be as popular or as interesting for more Arab governments to, to sign on following what's happened in the last couple of weeks. And obviously, another government that has certainly a vested interest of some sort in recent developments is the United States government because of its central role in relationship historically with both parties and particularly close strategic relationship with with Israel. Um, That was really obviously heavily emphasized by the Trump administration. The Biden administration since it's come into office has seemed to strike a, you know, carefully close relationship, at least in my eyes, although, you know, Natan, feel free to disagree with me, where, you know, they seem to, while that sometimes be maybe a little cool towards Netanyahu, there's that dispute about how long it took Biden to call Netanyahu head to head. You still see a lot of high level engagement with Secretary of Defense Austin, other people at kind of the working policy level with Israelis in a fairly public fashion, kind of holding them close. And you haven't seen, you know, much of a outspoken verbal advocacy criticizing a lot of Israeli policies that certainly the Obama administration had issues with, although there are reports that a lot of that diplomacy is happening through quieter channels at, at kind of more working levels. How has the have these recent developments challenged the Biden administration's approach to, frankly, the Israel, Israeli-Palestinian conflict kind of as a whole? Um, has it shown some gaps in the strategic approach, um, some problems with what might be a, uh, an approach that's a li- focused a little bit more on quiet internal conversations as opposed to more public building of pressure? Or is it too early to tell and we still need to wait to see whether that approach may bear some fruit in terms of tamping down a conflict that at this point the Biden administration has come out and said is a problem and has been urging both sides to try and avoid further escalation on? So I, I think... A lot depends, of course, on how what how what shape this conflict takes. Now it's it's become a Hamas-Israeli fight, and with you know the barrage of rockets ongoing right now is is huge, perhaps unprecedented, and the Israeli response is likely to be to be very heavy, as we discussed. So long as it was an issue in Jerusalem, and especially around the Sheikh Jarrah issue, there really was a fundamental difference of opinion between the administration and Israel. That's not to say that it was high in the administration's priority. It's not. I'll get to that in a moment. But bottom line, push comes to shove, there was actually a very different point of view. There was a difference of opinion. To the degree that it's becoming an Israel-Hamas fight, uh, it becomes in some way, I hate to use the word simpler because it's, it's so grim, but it becomes simpler from a policy perspective in the United States, partly because of who the actors are and partly because of what we're talking about. We're talking about a an organization firing rockets at civilians across a border. And the United States, obviously, as has been repeated a million times, would also respond forcefully. So outside of the context of how this came, it becomes, in a sense, an easier policy question. But to start with, the Biden administration, like many other administrations, but perhaps more so, uh, has wanted the Middle East to partly leave it alone. Biden has an enormous agenda, of course, most of it domestic. There's a pandemic, there's the economic crisis, there's a structural and very broad economic agenda that he has domestically. And then in foreign policy, there are other issues that are 
perhaps correctly, much higher on the Biden administration's priority, whether it be it China or Russia or transatlantic relations or a whole host of questions, especially under the broad rubric of the competition with China and building up American capacity and maybe capacity of democracies. The Middle East does not feature high in any of that. And inside the Middle East, the Israeli-Palestinian issue features rather low as well. The one issue that was very high on the agenda and remains so is the Iranian question. And on that too, what the Biden administration wants, mostly from the Israelis and the Palestinians, is to be as quiet as possible for about four years. However, as is the case with many administrations, there's sort of the godfather problem. They try to get out and they pull me back in. I try to get out and they pull me back in. And sooner or later, something like this happens and the United States is pulled back in, in part because of its close relation and and support for Israel, in part because of sort of a knee-jerk view of the United States as the the grown-up is supposed to solve people's problems. So the the Biden administration does find itself in a bind right now. It has signaled to the Israelis they wanted calm. It certainly there was signaling around the, the march, uh, the Jerusalem Day march and other things, but it was a relatively quiet kind of response so far. And I think to the degree that this becomes a major, it already has become actually, continues to be a major confrontation between Israel and Hamas, uh, it'll be harder and harder for the Biden administration to do what it wants to do. I will say, though, however, that the, the basic approach of the Biden administration, which is it is going to go the Biden way on Iran, which is extremely unpopular in Israel among the government and not not just this government, but broadly in Israel. And on most other issues, it will try and actually on this issue, too, will try to coordinate closely with Israel and will try to keep the rest of it triangulated and quiet. That basic equation is probably still true. It will try to get through this probably very difficult time now, quiet things down together with the Egyptians and the Qataris and others. And then as quickly as possible, I imagine, return to the basic approach of the Biden administration, which is keep your eye on the goal and then top of your priorities. And uh, for better or worse, those do not include trying to resolve the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, which they do not believe is is going to be resolved soon and is therefore a bad investment of their time or so or so that logic would go. Yeah, I, I really have to agree with Natan. I feel like this was a, a very convenient thing that happened to have, you know, this conflict turn into a Hamas rocket fire, Israeli rocket fire um, bombardment situation, because, you know, prior to that, what you had was a really glaring example of the human rights abuses that are taking place in Israel at a time when, I mean, taking place in the occupied Palestinian territories specifically, at a time when we had, you know, this Human Rights Watch report come out that found that Israeli officials have created a system of domination over Palestinians from inside Israel to the occupied territories, including the refugees, and that it's engaged in apartheid in the occupied territories. And this report came out at a time when the Biden administration, you know, had released its interim national security paper talking about values, values here, values there. The entire document repeats the reassertion of this administration's priorities around values-based foreign policy and national security strategy and, you know, restoring U.S. global leadership and international law and, and respect for multilateralism. And so to have to deal with the situation in Sheikh Jarrah 
and the you know disproportionate and excessive use of force in Jerusalem was very difficult for this administration. And you could see it if you watch the you know State Department briefings. It became very painful <laughs> to watch the spokesperson try to respond to what was going on, what's been going on in Israel-Palestine, because the refrain would always go back to, we support a two-state solution regardless of what was happening. What the clash was or the conflict of the moment was, that was always the refrain. And so I think having this turn into a Hamas-Israel issue really is a relief, probably in some ways, because now, you know, that, that issue, the human rights issue, doesn't have to be dealt with. That's the fundamental issue here, right? It's not it's not the rocket fire and it's not one home in Sheikh Jarrah. The issue is, you know, what is going to become of Israelis and Palestinians in the long run if the issues aren't addressed, the underlying issues aren't addressed. And that and that is the denial of freedom and rights for Palestinians, uh, wherever they are, whether it's as citizens of Israel who live as second class citizens or it's Palestinians living under occupation or it's refugees that are still living in camps uh, only miles away from their home. If those issues aren't addressed and they're allowed to linger, the U.S. is going to have an increasingly difficult time in reasserting itself as a moral actor, a normative actor in the world. It's going to be the glaring exception, particularly since the U.S. has such a close relationship with Israel, provides it with so much you know, security assistance while all this is taking place. And we're finally seeing sort of this conversation happen within the halls of Congress about this very issue of, you know, to what extent should the U.S. be so closely aligned with Israeli policies that are denying Palestinians their freedom and rights. I agree with Zaha that there's a serious issue for the United States. Um, I wouldn't overstate the importance of the Human Rights Watch report. The decision to use the term apartheid uses a very specific definition of apartheid. But I just want to caution the the idea that that the fact that there is a very serious question of where Israelis and Palestinians will go does not mean that it is increasingly impossible for the status quo to continue or for the United States to deal with it. There have been times in the past where it was much harder for the United States. And the fact is that today in the world, and including in the, in the Middle East, there are many instances of far worse abuses of human rights and certainly far worse conditions, uh, certainly than the West Bank. Gaza may be a different story. And so the question of whether the United States can deal with other things uh, and pretend that this is not the most important thing in the world, it can do so, in part because although as a Jerusalemite, this is the most important issue in the world to me, it is not the most important issue in the world, nor is it the most egregious, by any means, the most egregious human condition, even in the close vicinity of the Levant. And so I would just caution, you know, the the sense that the Middle East pulls you back is true, but it is also limited. The fact is we've seen decades, now many decades, where uh, the powers that be can continue. And it is not simply enough for those of us who want change to sort of hope that the, the weight of the injustice will somehow compel the powers to change things. Injustice is to a large degree in the eye of the beholder, and there are there are certainly very different views of the situation than Zaha's, or than mine, I should say. And the United States can focus on other things. It it will have to also deal with this, in part because of the close alliance with Israel, but it can deal with other things. 
The ones who cannot are the Israelis and the Palestinians. I'll add also to something you said before, you know, the UAE can ignore this. It is very far away and it doesn't have that big a citizenry. It'll have to make the right sounds and I think it'll slow down the, the pace of normalization. But to a large degree, it can ignore this issue. The ones who cannot are the Israelis and the Palestinians. And it's incumbent on both of them to figure out how they get their house in order and how they chart some kind of future. Uh, I would also caution one more thing, which is the, there's a tendency now to, to say, well, given all, all that we're seeing, we should simply aspire you know, for one state or for a complete change of paradigm. And here too, I would just caution that what we're viewing right now is to a certain degree, the one state. This is part of what we're seeing. Uh, what we're seeing in Sheikh Jarrah, and I don't mean this polemically, you know, is to a certain degree uh, in the Israeli narrative, almost an implementation of right of, of a right of return, albeit, of course, completely imbalanced and with no right of return for Palestinians, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But the Jordanian law that confiscated the land that was then handed to these families or refugees uh, from what became Israel, this was part of the the Jordanian law. That was there was a similar law in Israel as well that handed. Palestinian refugees land or houses to refugees from either Muslim countries or from Europe. My point in all this is to say, I'm, I'm sorry to be pessimistic on this. The fact that this is glaringly bad does not necessarily compel a change. Change will happen will, where, to my mind when there is constructive, responsible, and very pragmatic in a sort of ruthless kind of sense uh, action on both sides, certainly on the Israeli side that has more power, but also on the Palestinian one. I don't think it's going to come from the embarrassment of the State Department briefings. I think we'll have to leave the discussion there. Uh, Zaha Natan, thank you so much for joining us today on the Lawfare Podcast. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Please take a moment to rate and review the Lawfare Podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you might be listening. This podcast was engineered by Ian Enright of Goat Rodeo and edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our music was performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.